Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Chris Chimes is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney, whose GTF engines are redefining aviation. Learn more at pwgtf.com. TA Connections, the industry's most comprehensive airline lodging and crew logistics program, taconnections.com. And Seabury Capital Group, global reach, global scale, seaburycapital.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at airlinesconfidential.com. Welcome aboard, airline fans. This is Chris Chimes, and this is Airlines Confidential. Glad you're here, and of course, I'm glad Ben Baldanza is here as well. Hey, Chris. I'm very excited that our former colleague, Andrew Nisella, the Chief Commercial Officer of United Airlines, is going to join us. But there's a lot going on that we should talk about first, so take it away. Well, obviously, Ben, the world's talking about Ukraine as they should, and as it relates to aviation, Airports are closed in Ukraine. Airspace for Russian Airlines has been blocked by just about the entire EU now as of Sunday while we're talking. Russia, in turn, has blocked access to Russian airspace for those countries who are blocking them. Delta suspended its code share with Aeroflot, and Japan Airlines suspended service to Moscow most recently. What do you think the chatter is in airline suites right now? Well, first, Chris, this is just a terrible situation for the world. And obviously, you and I and all of our listeners, I'm sure, feel for the people of Ukraine. But let me say that from an airline standpoint, I think what the C-suite people are talking about now is a couple things. What is this going to mean for fuel price? Obviously, Russia produces a lot of fuel. And if the fuel markets are disjointed or upset because of reactions to Russia, then oil prices could go through the roof. We could be looking at a situation like 2008 again, when oil went to $147 a barrel. I'm certainly not predicting that, but I'm sure they're worried about that. And just as traffic is starting to rebound and just as you know, a good spring is looking like it's happening, and then a really bullish summer. If airlines are faced with really high fuel prices, that could be a, just another challenge on top of what they've been dealing with the last couple of years. Then, of course, the airlines that fly long haul have to think about what this does for their operation. To be safe, obviously, I'm sure flight planning is going crazy for airlines that fly to places where they might have to cross Russian airspace or Ukrainian airspace or others. And what does that mean? What does that mean for length of flights? Obviously, some flights are going to get canceled because of that. The Delta Aeroflot code share it seems to be really smart that they stopped that. They didn't want to be you know, getting any trouble for saying, why are you doing business with the Russians when they're doing this? I think they got out early as soon as they read those tea leaves, and that was smart. But, you know, for the airlines that are principally domestic, it's probably just a world instability and fuel price issue. For those that are global, it's going to affect their operations and their route planning, too. Well, first, Ben, let me echo your thoughts and support for the Ukrainian people and the Russian people who I don't think are supportive of what's going on. There are so many layers here. Like you said, there's the fuel price and routing of aircraft that are the first thing. But then you've got issues like where do the Russian airlines fit into global alliances? What does this do, like you said, to the demand for travel? My kids asked over the weekend about our plans for Europe and the summer and whether we should proceed. Russia is a major producer of titanium. What does that do for Airbus and Boeing aircraft? So, you know, I think the world's watching. The world didn't respond when Russia shot down the Malaysia Airlines seven, Flight 17, but five, seven years ago. So, you know, they, they've been looming around aviation in multiple ways, whether it be their impact on fuel prices, the production of aircraft, their airspace. I think these are just really the most inconvenient things to happen right now beyond the, the impact on world peace and human rights and everything else involved, certainly for the airline industry, like you said, that's trying to climb out of the pandemic. This could be a kick in the, in the shin just when they don't need it. 
I think that's right, Chris. And as much as this is affecting the U.S. airlines in the way that I said, if you're an Emirates or you're a Middle Eastern airline or a Lufthansa group or an IAG, that a lot of your planes go in that direction, it's got to be even another level of anxiety going on in those headquarters. Like we say, uh, on many topics, we'll continue to watch this issue. Obviously, we can't keep up with it in real time, given our recording schedule, but um, hopefully things will have tempered a bit with talks now that Russian and Ukrainian officials are going to be at least in some kind of a dialogue uh, over the coming days. And then here in the U.S., Ben, the CDC issued some much more liberal mask guidance as it relates to indoor and outdoor settings, but it was silent on masks on airplanes, saying only that the current requirement through March 18th is still in effect. Meanwhile, the Association of Flight Attendants is saying they expect the requirement to be extended. Are you a betting man? And if you are, where are you going to place your chips here? Well, if I were a betting man, Chris, I'm going to bet that the mask mandate on airplanes will be extended. And let me tell you why I believe that. Uh, Number one, the CDC's more liberal mask guidance, while very welcome, is based on sort of a new way of measuring things. And before they looked at case counts, and they've come to accept that case counts a while ago maybe were separated from hospitalizations and deaths and things like that. So now they're looking at a much more robust thing, which is case counts plus hospitalization rates plus available of hotel rooms. And they've created a site where you can literally buy county. You can pick your state and pick your county and it'll assess your risk as low, medium or high. And they're saying if the risk is low where you are, which where I live, Arlington County, Virginia, is low. Where you live, Chris, I looked, Dallas, Texas is medium. But based on that, that determines whether or not they think it's okay to be indoors without a mask and things like that. Because an airplane moves from one place to another, it would get very complicated to say, Maybe you don't need the airplane to board because you board in a low, but if you're flying to a place that's high, you got to have the mask when you get off. I mean, that just is so complicated that I think they're just going to say, until we're willing to say no one needs to wear a mask indoors for anything, then airplanes are so indoors, you can't walk outdoors, that I think they're going to extend it. The second thing, I said there were two, the second thing is the Association of Flight Attendants wants it to be extended. And we have a current administration that listens to big labor. And if the unions are saying, we think we need this to be safe, I think that in combination with what I first said is going to encourage the administration to extend the mask mandate. That's why I would bet on that, Chris. Would you Would you take the other side of that bet? No, I'm going to see your wager. I'm not going to raise it, but I'm going to match it. And uh, we'll just let it let it ride till March 18th or sometime before then when we'll get some better information. But I think your assessment is, is pretty spot on. Well, uh, that's not necessarily the best thing in what every traveler wants. But if it's what's needed to keep us all safe, then I can live with that for you know, another quarter or maybe even the rest of this year. Who knows? Well, Airlines Confidential wants to thank TA Connections, which partners with more than 140 aviation and cruise line companies and hundreds of thousands of hotels worldwide. They monitor and track room utilization to ensure you get the most out of the rooms you buy and you only pay for what you consume, which means enhanced operations and a true savings to your organization. Learn more at taconnections.com. TA Connections is a fleet core company and the world's leading provider of technology and services for crew and passenger logistics management. And this week's show is also brought to you by Pratt & Whitney, a world leader in aircraft engines, helicopter engines, and auxiliary power units. The Pratt & Whitney GTF engine is delivering industry-leading sustainability, mature dispatch reliability, and world-class operating costs. Now with the GTF Advantage engine for the Airbus A320neo family, the best is getting even better. 
Learn more at pwgtf.com slash advantage. Ben, the final news item and something I thought I'd never see. London Heathrow Airport saw its lowest passenger levels in 2021 since 1972, almost 50 years, 19.4 million. The operator of London Heathrow says the airport will meet its target of 45.5 million for 2022, although it's trailing projections for the first two months of the year. As a reference point, in 2019, London Heathrow handled 81 million passengers. Heathrow's been losing its long-held leadership position and relevance for a while. Ben, how did they get their mojo back? I was shocked at these numbers, Chris. 19.4 million against 81 million in 2019. You know, in this country, we compare to 2019 and we're seeing generally increasing rates of leisure versus 2019 and business traffic versus 2019. But obviously for an airport like London Heathrow, they're still really reeling from this pandemic. And I think it's because of what Heathrow has become and what made them handle those 81 million passengers. Heathrow is one of the premier connecting airports in the world. It's an important through point to get from the West to lots of the East and for Europe to get to Africa and other places. And the local demand from the UK to Asia, the US, other parts of the world is huge. And yet the pandemic has really hit long haul travel. So we see wide body airplanes flying around the US and saying, oh, isn't it nice that I get a, a nice big triple seven to fly from New York to Florida. But then you stop and think is why is that airplane on that route? Because it's not flying to London and it's not flying to Europe right now. And so I think for Heathrow to get its mojo back, the world has to start flying long haul again. And that is a longer pole in the tent than we've seen with the domestic U.S. market. So I think Heathrow will carry many more people than 19.4 million this year and in years going forward. I'm not totally sure they're going to get back to 81 million because Heathrow competes in that throughput role with Frankfurt, with the Middle Eastern hubs, to a lesser extent, maybe with Amsterdam and Istanbul, right? Also who do those kinds of things, but Heathrow is a few rungs above on the ladder to some of those places in terms of who has carried that kind of traffic. But I think that until business travelers and leisure travelers are willing to book long haul trips again, you said earlier in the show, Chris, that your daughter said, what about our Europe vacation this year? Well, People are still worried about that. They're worried about it because of because of what's happening in the Ukraine. They're worried about it maybe because they heard our correspondent Chris Sloan talk about how he got stuck in St. Lucia, right? They're worried about it because they see these changing unknown um, situations and what happens if I get stuck? What happens if I can't get back? And that's put a real crimp on things. And it all came together in these Heathrow numbers, which completely shocked me. Ben, I agree with everything you just said, but I'm going to add a couple other layers on top of this. I really think UK officials need to get real here as it relates to Heathrow for a couple of reasons. One, their ridiculous tax scheme. It costs so much more to fly to Heathrow or connect through Heathrow compared to other major hubs in Europe. Two, while you talked about, and I agree you think of Heathrow mainly as a long-haul airport, you still have the overhang of Brexit and what that means for the UK economy as it relates to travel to and from other parts of Europe. And three, there's this undercurrent already going on that we talked about a couple of weeks ago where some of the European nations are going to try to force IAG to divest BA from that conglomeration of airlines. So, if they're sitting there thinking of Heathrow as the way it used to be, I, I think they need to really take a survey of the landscape and make some changes in public policy and in their cost structure that uh, 
can improve the the future of Heathrow as a as maintaining its major place in aviation. That's a fantastic point, Chris, and I think you're absolutely right. It'll be interesting to see when we get passenger numbers for Gatwick, Stansted, and Luton, and then can look at a total London, what the drop is, uh, because I'm assuming it's a drop, compared to 2019. We might find that the flights flown by Orion Air at Stansted, for example, aren't down as much as Heathrow, or the EasyJet operations aren't down as much as Heathrow was. So it'll be interesting to see how much of this is all London and UK and Europe kind of issue, and how much is Heathrow specific within the London market. Airlines Confidential will be right back with our conversation with Andrew Nacella for United Airlines. Promotional support for Airlines Confidential comes from thearchive.net, the hub of the history of commercial aviation with vintage timetables, route maps, brochures, historic flights, terminals, airplane cabins, virtual tours of airline maintenance and training facilities, models, safety cards, and menus, plus special flights and events. Thearchive.net is now boarding. We're very happy to welcome to the show Andrew Nacella, the Chief Commercial Officer of United Airlines. Andrew, thanks for being here. And we always ask our guests to start by telling us about your airline background and a little bit about your job now. Great. Well, it's great to be here, Ben. My airline background, wow, it's, it's been an amazing career. I decided I'd like to be in the airline business even before I went to college. And I ultimately... Um, my first airline job was working with you, actually, um, at Continental Airlines down in Houston, Texas in the mid-1990s. And it was a fantastic adventure. It was a crazy time at Continental. We had Continental Light going, if I recall correctly. From there, I, I went on. Um, I left uh, Continental and I joined America West, which became U.S. Airways, where you and I, of course, worked again which became ultimately American Airlines. And so I spent the bulk of my career at the America West, uh, U.S. Airways, American Airlines kind of combination. And now here I am at uh, United, where I'm the chief commercial officer, where, you know, the, the maybe the easiest way to say what I do today are, um, is really revenue generating things, not everything related to revenue, but um, our pricing, our RM, our network, a uh, big chunk of our fleet planning, our loyalty division, our sales group, and so on and so forth. And it's a, it's a fascinating job. It has lots of moving pieces uh, to make it all work. I enjoy it very much. Hey, Andrew, you know, every week we end up talking about some aspect of COVID and the pandemic. And so I want to tee this up in the context of United specifically. You all have been very proactive about vaccine requirements and taking a leadership position on this with your employees. I'm just wondering, can you equate that to any kind of positive results in your customer bookings? Uh, Chris, it's a, it's a really good question. So we we never took any position to do anything in regards to our bookings. Um, you know, our, our first motivation was safety and safety for our team. It always has been um, and always will be. And in looking at all the data, we felt this was the right move from a safety perspective. Uh, and uh, I think that's proved itself out. It's not. It was. Uh, it was controversial to some segment of, of the population, and we were aware of that. But the safety was our number one priority, um, and uh, we're proud to have made that stand. That being said, I, you know, you know, when I look at our bookings, which I look at every day because that's one of the areas I'm very responsible for. Obviously, I can't say that it had any impact on our bookings in a materially negative or positive way. That's great, Andrew. I was thinking it might have actually been positive. I mean, I would think customers who are nervous about flying saying, well, hey, I'm going to want to fly an airline that's very proactive about this. Another thing we've talked on the show about is just business travel and what's happening. A lot of people are concerned that at least some types of business travel may not return, like intracompany travel or things like that. What is your view on the return of business travel? Sure. It's, it's, it's a question I face um, every day. Our, our investors ask us those questions, obviously, uh, and the sales group reports to me. So I talk to our largest, our, our largest corporate partners, about what their plans are. And, you know, I think you hear a mixed bag of, of things. My perspective on summing up everything I hear is 
that business traffic will return, but it'll be different. There probably will be some bit of less intercompany travel than there had been to begin with, but there are probably more people commuting to their new remote location uh, and things like that. So from our perspective, we've already seen the numbers start to move in the right direction, obviously, pre-Omicron, uh, where you think the same thing is happening now. And, you know, it's hard to say exactly where this will wind up, but we're confident that business travel will return because, you know, people people just the, the value of an in-person meeting the first time your Salesforce loses a key client because they did a meeting over the Internet versus doing a meeting in person, I think that affects um, your business outlook. So we remain really confident that it's coming back. But we also would say it's going to come back differently. And, you know, I think we are well positioned from a United Airlines perspective in the right hubs with the right aircraft to take advantage of it when it gets back. There's no doubt we hope to have a higher and higher share of business traffic in the future. Andrew, our regular listeners know that we've been very complimentary of you and Scott and the United team over these past couple of years for being bold, making some tough decisions, making some interesting decisions. Uh, one of them being the decision to make a commitment to the boom supersonic uh-huh. jet. If you had these today and they were truly economic to operate, what kind of routes do you see uh, them going on initially? It's it's definitely a great question. Um, You know, we look forward to the development of this jet. Maybe where I start off from, Chris, is that us getting involved early uh, was the key factor here in helping um, the engineers uh, design an airplane that also worked from a commercial perspective. And so we're still in the early phase of the development of this aircraft and making sure that its commercial uh, aspects, you know, kind of meet spec that United Airlines would need so that it could fly the aircraft. Obviously, um, you know, our intention would be to fly it on the key route, obviously, from New York to London. Uh, We operate, you know, multiple daily flights, seven to eight daily flights between New York and London. uh, And we think this is uh, a prime spot for the aircraft. But there are other potential routes to Europe and other potential routes across the Pacific from San Francisco as well that are are in our long-term outlook. But just, you know, I just would go back. The reason for our early involvement is to make sure that we can help this aircraft develop commercial legs that work for United Airlines. That'll be great technology when it's available, Andrew. It's exciting that you guys are part of developing that. Well, let's get back to airplanes that are actually flying today. Mm -hmm. And United has bet on its wide body fleet more than your two largest competitors, you know, Delta use the pandemic to say we're going to retire the 777s, for example, and things. Um, Are you confident this is a good strategy to still be sort of heavy in the wide body space? Uh, Yeah, Ben, it's it's something we've been thinking about a lot. And, you know, as we went into this crisis, we, we thought about how we wanted to exit the crisis and how we would use that exit process to really gain a advantage relative to others. And when we kind of look at the world and we look at, you know, where we are, you know, positioned for strength, it is in the really the best global gateways from the United States. And, you know, we need wide body aircraft to kind of reach the world from those airports. So ultimately, we made a bet. Um, You're happy with that bet to keep the entire wide body fleet, uh, including the 767s, which are starting to get up there in age. And that's going to really propel our growth uh, in the global markets. The other thing that we've seen, you know, over over the pandemic period is a more of a restructuring of capacity in the global markets than here and within the United States. And that is there's some a few players that were doing uneconomic things that are no longer flying. And so we think that the foundation, the the economics just look uh, really much better uh, overseas uh, in the coming years than possibly they do here domestically. And so we're really happy with that bet. And the other thing I would add is that the 767-300 and to some extent the 767-400, while they will have to be replaced someday, there's no doubt about that. These aircraft, given their cost of operation and size, are really unique. There's not a, uh, a really optimal replacement for these aircraft today. If you were to put a 787 on a 767 route, you'll make less money consistently today. And so we carefully use each of our aircraft to make sure we can make the most margin we can, obviously. And the 767 still has a place today. And, you know, we will retire it someday um, and will probably be replaced by an aircraft that's not as economical as it, to be frank. 
but today is not that day. Do you think there's a one-for-one one kind of replacement, or what do you see as the most obvious replacements for the 6.7? Well, you know, from a United perspective, it's the we've ordered the A321 XLR, uh, which has very long legs but does not have a lot of seats. And we've ordered um, the 787-8, which has a reasonable number of seats but incredibly long legs. And so those two aircraft um, are, are potential, I think, to fill in the gap. But we'll have to wait and see, and you know, we'll have to wait and see how the market develops. That you know, maybe we want to upsize things and go even bigger. But I just wanted to, as it kind of came through this crisis, is buy as much time with the seven six seven fleet we have today, so that we have enough time to kind of decide what the optimal replacement is uh, going forward. We'll have more with our guest Andrew Nacella in a moment. But first, our thanks to Seabury Securities, a Seabury Capital Group company, a specialty finance and investment banking firm, boasting a 25-year track record of advising aviation clients around the world. Their award-winning and widely respected team has superior industry knowledge, as well as an unmatched depth of relationships with decision makers in industry, finance, and government. Explore their global reach and scale at SeaburySecurities.com. Welcome back to Airlines Confidential. We're talking to Andrew Nacella from United Airlines. Andrew, you have spent a fair amount of time since you got to United building up your hubs to create better connections and to more cities. Tell us a bit about that strategy and how it affects your revenue and operations. Sure. You know, uh, you know one of the things that's, I, I think, really important to uh, a hub-and-spoke carrier is really the number of connections we build. And, you know, I think, I, you know, I've been at United exactly five years today, by the way. It's been an incredible five years. And one of the reasons I came to United was I just thought, you know, this is the number one network system on the globe. And, um, you know, it, it just wasn't working, you know, wasn't the, the end result wasn't the number one output. And, and I thought to myself, as Ben knows, you know, I, I love networks. And I love putting these puzzles together. And I thought to myself, you know, how would I put this puzzle together in a way that can make what people refer to as the number one network in the world really achieve the number one results? And I've been at work at that for about five years now, and we've made a lot of progress pre-pandemic, and we intend to come out of the pandemic and make a lot more, obviously, with our United Next plan. But building out our hubs, making sure we have the right size aircraft and having the right level of connectivity is just fundamental to all that. And clearly, when we kind of looked at where we were, you know, relative to what we thought the potential of the cities we fly to and from were, we were just undersized. Not only did we not have enough flights, but often we'd fly a 50-seat RJ with no premium capacity, where our competitors flew a much larger aircraft with premium capacity. And that put us at a disadvantage. We literally had a higher cost product per unit in the 50-seat RJ with a lower quality output because it didn't have any premium seats on board. And United Next is about recreating that whole formula and allowing us to achieve our full potential. So we look forward to it. Uh, we're ready for the pandemic to officially end. Uh, we're, we're, we, it seems like we're coming out of this uh, soon as a, as a country and as a world. And we're ready to get back to the United Next plan and get that all implemented. Andrew, congratulations on five years. That's fantastic. I'm glad we can share a little piece of this anniversary day with you. As you know, a lot of the industry's growth is coming from lower cost, leisure focused airlines, the airlines that have IPO'd this year, the new airlines that have started up. How do you think about United competing with this kind of airline and how do you win against them? That's a really um, great question. And we do not have uh, very low costs, and we will will never admit that we do. You know, our you know the, the reality is is we are a relatively high cost enterprise, um, and part of our high costs are we operate from high cost airports, and part of our high cost is we operate with low density aircraft. We do a bunch of things that we think provide options to our travelers that are unique and different, and that really kind of separate us from some of those lower cost alternatives. We have plenty of low cost seats. We offer a basic economy product. And, and we do that, I think, in a, in a profitable way. But we do this through, you know, trying to segment our business to make sure that there are options available to the travelers that want to fly in United. Some of those options are very low cost options. And some of those options include a lot of other frills that cost more money to provide. And so we, you know, we use this term segment our revenue. Um, it's kind of a, I don't know if that's a technical term or how you want to describe it because it's, it's not very people oriented. But it is about making sure that we provide options 
uh, at different levels of service, at different price points for the customers that are really based in our seven hubs and then around the United States and the spokes we serve. And that strategy differentiates us from others every day. And we think that differentiation is really, really important. You know, one of the things that we decided to do a little over uh, two and a half years ago now, but it's just showing up now, is to put seatback videos on um, every one of our seats on our mainline aircraft. And not all of our competitors do that. And we think that's yet another way of really separating ourselves from the pack and providing a really unique experience on board the aircraft that differentiates us from others. And so we will continue to work on that skill of differentiating ourselves, providing options for our customers, whether it's a basic economy ticket they'd like or a you know, business class ticket to London Heathrow in one of our flatbed seats to make sure that United can be all it can be. Again, and you know what I'll go back to is we look carefully at the demographics of our seven hubs, where the corporations are, where they fly, what class of service they fly, and then where do you know the SMEs fly out of those cities? Where do regular consumers want to go on vacation out of those cities? And put together a really comprehensive product in those markets that really serves all the different types of customers in those markets. We're not just trying to serve high-end customers or low-end customers. We're really trying to, to really create a broad spectrum of opportunities to capture market shares in our seven hubs. So let's pull on that string a bit with regard to your hub strategies. You operate in some very unique hubs and some that have systemic or chronic kind of operational challenges, whether it be congestion at Newark there seems like there's always construction at SFO. Talk to us about the unique challenges or the opportunities as it relates to your specific hubs. Yeah, Chris, it's it's, uh, it's something we deal with every day and that many of the cities we fly to, particularly uh, Newark, which serves the New York metro area and San Francisco, are airports that do face more ATC congestion than average. And so one of the key components of United Next is upgaging our aircraft. We recognize that, you know, 10 years from now out of, out of Newark, we will probably have approximately the same number of flights per day that we do today. Uh, maybe a few more the off-peak periods. Uh, but in the summer, that's about 450 flights per day, maybe a little bit less, maybe a little bit more. And so we're not going to be growing with more flights out of either of these cities. We're going to be growing with larger aircraft, and those larger aircraft are going to come with really great passenger amenities but our United Next plan is a reflection, not only for these two airports we're talking about now, but many of the other airports we also serve that, you know, these smaller aircraft at higher costs with lower quality service just are, are there's no room in the skies for them uh, in the next generation of how we compete and what our customers want. And so out of Newark, for example, you will see just in a few years time, very few regional jets uh, flying for United's behalf in and out of Newark. Uh, the majority of our operation will be on mainline jets. Um, the same is true out of San Francisco. That makes a lot of sense, Andrew, and makes a lot of sense with the order that you placed recently to replace a lot of your regional jets with bigger narrow bodies too. Well, as we've talked about on the show, one of the major issues for the industry in the last half year at least has been cancellations of flights due to staff shortages. You've been involved with building really creative schedules. I know you as someone who always coordinated in the places we've worked really well with the ops teams. How does it work in a such an unpredictable demand environment to plan a schedule as big as United's and coordinate with an operating team to be able to run a schedule with such uncertainty on the staffing side? Uh, it's been a challenging time period, Ben, that's for sure. And I, I'm going to give kudos to our ops team. They, they have done it. Uh, they've done a great job. It's been difficult and it's been a lot of hard work. And the starting point is communications. We are constantly communicating about our abilities, uh, whether they be pilot staffing on an individual aircraft type, airport staffing in a certain city, and so on and so forth. And then, you know, you put in this like demand is changing all the time. And, um, and it's hard to predict exactly when demand would have rebounded um, to, you know, pre-pandemic levels. And our ops team has been there for us the entire time period. We thank them very much. And um, ultimately, from a scheduling perspective, what I can tell you from this day one of the pandemic, we were building multiple schedules 
for each time period. So normally, you know, we build a few schedules per year uh, and instead we're now building a few schedules per schedule period. And so our scheduling group was under an incredible lot of pressure, obviously, during that time period. But as a result, we had optionality month to month to operate any schedule we needed to do. And we had the ability to implement it really late. We worked with our, our pilots to make sure that we could load each schedule for sale as late as possible because we wanted to fly the right schedule uh, during each of these time periods with the right aircraft types. And I could tell you, it was just an incredible amount of work. But there would be literally, particularly for the summer of 2020, we had multiple different schedules. And not only were they different schedules, each one of those schedules had a different hub and uh, spoke bank structure in our key hubs, because in some cases we would need like one or two banks, but in other schedule scenarios, we need four or five. And so amazingly enough, our team had to develop that. And that was most complex thing I think I've ever seen from a scheduling perspective. And we did it. We did it really well. And if you look at what we did, we literally changed our hub structures multiple times during the crisis, depending on how big or small we were, to make sure that we could still offer all the connectivity we needed to do across the country. And I think our team did it better than any other airline in the country. And a lot of people don't realize that because they don't look at the, they look at flight totals and departure totals, but they don't look at the fact that our hub structures are constantly changing to meet the requirements of the size of the airline we were going to fly. So to that point, Andrew, how much of the product you offer in your mind is the schedule and the dependability of the operation versus the rest of the product, the onboard amenities and seat pitch and you talked about in-flight entertainment and food or whatever else? Sure. Well, you, the dependability is the, is the starting point. Without a dependable operation, your customers are not going to be loyal to you. And by the way, uh, the highest cost operation you can run is an unreliable one. And so the starting point, obviously, is dependability, no matter where we do, and of course, safety. Beyond that, you know, the schedule is a cornerstone of, of kind of what we do and how we attract customers to United Airlines. But we have noticed more and more, particularly as the competition, you know, competitive framework has changed in the country, that the, the need to differentiate United and to do so based on the demographics and geography of our seven hubs uh, is really kind of how we separate ourselves. And so whether it's Seatback Entertainment, or the ability to plug in your personal device into the seat, or having you know multiple classes of service on board, all these things are really um, beginning to differentiate United from other airlines, in my opinion, and do it in a way that's going to be incredibly successful for us. Andrew, this has been so terrific. We really appreciate it. And as we wrap up, you speak with a very optimistic tone when we see your CEO, Scott Kirby, on TV. He's always so positive. United just seems very optimistic about the world going forward in your airline's position. What gives you this boost of confidence? That's a good question. You know, I, I, I think that during my whole career, I've always viewed, you know, there's just so much opportunity in this business. And I, I've approached it from the perspective you know, for so many years, we were operating so low margins and worried about our future and our, our communities and our team members uh, worried. And I've worked so hard over the last decade or so to make sure that we build strong financial foundations underneath the companies I've worked for. And so we can kind of take that worry away and we can reinvest in our community. We can reinvest in our customers and we can reinvest in our team members, which we've been proudly doing. And I will say that I just remain incredibly optimistic. What I do know is that we will face one more challenge, uh, you know, tomorrow and another challenge after that, because that's the way this business works. And our responsibility as the leadership of United Airlines is to manage through those conditions and successfully run the company financially and operationally and for our team and our communities and our investors, uh, no matter what we face. And I've seen so much in my career, as you have been as well, and Chris, and I just remain optimistic that our team, when we have to turn left and we ask our team to do so, they're going to do it. Uh, we're going to provide them the tools they need to be successful as we do that. Um, and we are going to you know, get through we, whatever we really confront in the future. It's because we have the agility. We know we need to keep changing as a business. We can't be what we were five or 10 years ago. We need to plan for the future. Again, that's what United Next is all about. And we will face other challenges and we just have to figure out how to work through them 
and deliver for all of our, you know, all of our team members, uh, investors again in communities. And we will do so because uh, that's what we are at United. You know, I had somebody ask me one time, you know, what is it about the airline industry that, that you know, attracts people? And I'm like, you know, when you wake up every day and your job is to defy gravity, it just creates that esprit de corps with regard to getting things done. Like you point out, Andrew, it's, it's like, we're going to get this done. We're going to overcome whatever obstacles in front of us and succeed. So uh, you articulate that really well. I know our listeners are going to love this conversation. Yeah, I, I mean, I... There's no better part of my job than when I go out to the airport and I look at the FID screen and I see on-time departures. And then I can look at my mind to know that those flights are making money for our investors and that we're investing in our product for our customers. It's just an amazing feeling. We're building a bunch of new clubs across the network right now. And I can see those clubs being built as I head through our hubs each, each week. And it's just so exciting um, to be able to just manage through this and find new opportunities for us at United to succeed and win. Well, congratulations, Andrew. You're in a great place, obviously doing a great job. We're very excited about what we see coming out of United Airlines. And thanks for sharing your time with us here at Airlines Confidential. Thanks for inviting me, Ben. I'd be happy to do it again someday. We'll be right back. The Airlines Confidential Podcast is now available on Apple, Google, iHeart, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Pandora, Spotify, TuneIn, and many more. Use your favorite podcasting app with just one click at airlinesconfidential.com. Welcome back to Airlines Confidential, and thanks again to Andrew for fielding our questions. Now it's time for us to field some of yours. Remember, you can email us at questions at airlinesconfidential.com. Or visit our website at airlinesconfidential.com and follow the prompts. We're available on all the major podcast platforms, and you can ask Amazon Alexa or Google Assist to turn us on. Just say, play the Airlines Confidential podcast. Chris, James from Southern California had a comment about our discussion last week regarding the Turkish Airlines Super Bowl ad. Hello, guys. While I don't have insight on the ROI for the Turkish Airlines Super Bowl ad, the carrier has a long history of advertising during the game pre-COVID times also. Historically, TK, which is Turkish Airlines, has used the game to kick off its annual marketing theme for the year. For example, back in 2017, TK also had Morgan Freeman with a similar theme of connecting the world. And in 2016, they had a Ben Affleck Batman-themed commercial. There's a city in Turkey named Batman. And in 2012, Kevin Costner felt like a star-themed commercial and 2011 with Kobe Bryant as a flying chef. In 2013, TK released Kobe Bryant versus Lionel Messi commercial, which at the time was one of the most watched videos on YouTube that year, with over 100 million views and was named Advert of the Decade by YouTube in 2015 and spawned a follow-up commercial by the two sports stars. From what I have read in 2018, TK spent over $200 million on marketing and what they term brand awareness campaign, which includes sports team and event sponsorships, media campaigns, high profile billboards, and so on. So it seems they are certainly not shy to spend the money to fly the brand flag. James, thanks for keeping us honest here. And, uh, you're right. Turkish has had a history of advertising in high-profile places, including the Super Bowl, for multiple years. I think our conversation, and maybe we weren't as um, deliberate in the topic as we could have been, it was kind of like, what was the point of that ad right now? It was boring. And they've shown the propensity to have fun and to have a little more personality in some of their advertising. And so i just not sure where that was at the moment in the context of encouraging people to fly. And Morgan Freeman's very melodic voice, once again, repeating his messages from several other ads. So they do spend money. Um, It's nice to see airlines up uh, at that level with other major brands and industries. But I, I personally thought it was boring and not memorable and not the way you'd want to use a Super Bowl ad. But that's my take. 
Chris, I kind of agree with your take, and I really appreciate James giving us all this backstory. He's absolutely right. They do spend a lot of money on this. But if you would ask me, and I mean, I'm an airline guy, right? If you would ask me about the Kobe Bryant Lionel Messi ad, I remember that ad, and it was a cool ad. But if you ask me who was the company that sponsored that ad, I don't know that I would have told you it was Turkish Air. And that's one of the problems with these kind of brand ads. You do a big splash, you make people feel a certain way, but do they attach that feeling to your brand or do they just like the commercial? So it'll be interesting to see whether this year's Super Bowl ad is deemed successful by the Turkish Airlines group. All fair points by you, Ben, and by James. So uh, thanks again, James, for writing in. And then, Ben, another follow-up from last week's show and in our conversation specific to our chat with Daryl Jenkins. It's from Mike in Grapevine, Texas. Guys, I just listened to your interview with Daryl Jenkins in which he briefly mentioned the future of drones and specifically that he envisioned private companies controlling airspace below 10,000 feet for drones and electric vertical takeoff and landing aircraft. I know that Ben is a private pilot and as such can appreciate the unique freedoms that we have in the U.S. to go virtually anywhere in light aircraft, much of the time free from the need to talk to ATC. I'm curious what you think the unintended consequences of increasing utilization of what was traditionally GA airspace by commercial entities might be and how you think organizations like AOPA, the Experimental Aircraft Association, and NBAA might respond to increase congestion costs and impact to freedoms. I would imagine companies that make their living doing flight training might have some thoughts as well. All great points, Mike. I think your point is well taken. If Daryl's right, and Daryl's a pretty smart guy about control of airspace under 10,000 feet, I think there's still going to be plenty of room for general aviation aircraft and for people that sounds like you and I used to be at least <laughs> flying around uh, under 10,000 feet, filing a flight plan when you want, but you don't even have to in a lot of cases, as you know. Um, but if there's a lot of drones flying around and they're delivering packages and they're surveying things, it's just going to change the amount of restricted airspace or change the procedures that are done, how it's going to affect smaller airports that cater to general aviation, and what sort of approach and and departure rules are going to be put in place. So I'm worried a bit like you in terms of what the explosion of commercial drone and eVTOL space can mean. The eVTOLs I'm less worried about because that's only going to be practical, if it's practical at all, in the bigger cities. So there's not a lot of general aviation in the places where the eVTOLs are going to fly. But the drone activity sharing space with general aviation is, I'm sure, one of the things that is delaying the commercialization of drones, along with lots of other things. And I think there's enough room for everything, but it's going to mean both the drones are going to not have as much space as they want, and general aviation is probably going to have to make some changes too. I still think the biggest unanswered question about drones, and maybe it's not the biggest, but one that I hadn't really thought of until our interview with Michael Huerta a few weeks ago was, what about the local regulation of drones and airspace by local government? Because- somebody running a business out of their garage and sending up drone activity all hours of the day and night is going to become a a neighborhood nuisance much more than an FAA-related nuisance in the context of who is is a person going to complain to, who's going to feel obligated to get involved and try to regulate it. And so there's a bunch of things beyond this, but, but Mike raises some very good points. Chris, our finer wine this week is from Joe in Tampa. I was flying United Airlines from L.A. to San Francisco on a 737 MAX. During the flight, a first-class flight attendant came through Economy Plus to do a drink service. I asked for a Diet Coke, but he poured a cup of Coke 
which I knew was Coke from the taste, and it elevated my blood sugar from being a diabetic. When I wrote customer care about the issue, I was given a not-my-problem attitude. This was after United lost my luggage with my insulin on the previous reservation. Is Joe whining here, Chris, or is United at fault? I'm going to give Joe a double whine. Sorry about that, Joe. First of all, that the pouring of the regular Coke versus the Diet Coke was a mistake, but it could be resolved right there on the spot. You've tasted it. You realize what it was or wasn't, and you could have got a replacement. So I'm not sure what escalating this to the customer service department was going to really accomplish. My bigger concern was, you know, I think from your previous correspondence with us, you work on the ramp. And so why were you packing your medication in a check bag? I got no sympathy for that, unfortunately. Everyone should know, I hope by now, you don't pack medication, you don't pack cash, you don't pack valuables in your suitcase and check it. So please don't be checking your your medications anymore, especially insulin. That's so critical. Chris, have you forgotten that every bag lost contains a $1,000 camera? <laughs> I wonder if people are still claiming cameras. Does anybody even have a camera anymore? But uh, Yeah, I know. They're probably <laughs> claiming iPads now. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Sorry, Joe, but that's a, that's a double no from us here. That's a wrap for another fun show. Thanks for listening. And as we close, I want to give my shout out to American Airlines for stepping up to take care of a school group from Montana that was stranded at DFW last week. When a group of 77 students, teachers, and chaperones from Frenchtown High School in Missoula, Montana, got caught up in a winter storm here in DFW, they could have been sleeping in the airport for up to five days because all other flight options were sold out. American decided to get them all home with a dedicated charter operation. This trip was the first time ever on a plane for almost half the kids. And I've got a feeling that American has some lifelong fans amongst the students, teachers, and parents in Missoula, Montana now. I'm thinking the mayor ought to give the American team a key to the city or something, but um, hats off again to the American. What a great move by American Airlines. That's a great shout out, Chris. Well, my shout out goes to Sebastian Bazin, who's the CEO of Acor Hotels. Acor is a big hotel chain in Europe. And my shout out is not because Acor made $95 million in 2021, which is pretty fantastic for a hotel chain, but because Sebastian has gone on record saying it's clear that the chain isn't waiting around for a full recovery of business travel, predicting at least a quarter of that business is gone forever. And from what I can see, Sebastian Bazin, and I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, is the first CEO of a hotel chain or airline that I've seen who has accepted the fact that business travel is permanently changed and not all of it is coming back. Well, that was a sobering uh, comment he made, but it was probably a realistic one for at least the next few years. So a good shout out. With that, we're going to say goodbye. Thanks again to Andrew DeSella for joining us. And thanks to all of you for listening. We'll see you here next week. Thanks again, Andrew. And thanks for all of you for listening. Have a great week. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.